0: I would recommend The Hobbit to anyone. The Lord of the Rings to most people who like a good story and like some sort of medieval style action. Um, I would recommend The Silmarillion to people who are interested in sparking their imagination through digesting a lot of material, each sentence of which, which just fires the imagination.
1: Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. All right, my friends. Inexplicably, uh, amazingly, I am, I am able and willing and ready to invite back to the podcast the only Dan Bellum. Dan, why would
0: you come Amazingly and probably for the last time. <laughs> I've uh, heard those words before. I've heard yeah, those words before. Well, uh, before, I think I had already agreed to do this.
1: That's, uh, that's true. So it, was a, it was a package deal. The,
0: the temptation, strong though it was to break my word, uh, I resisted. And also, um, the reason why is uh, because you're going to have to sit here and listen to me talk about Middle Earth for like two hours. Where I am. (coughs) Happy about that. My sister, (laughs) last year for my birthday, gave me an amazing present, which was she read Dune and then had a long conversation with me about Dune. there it is i couldn't have i would never have thought to ask for that but boy that was the gift it was amazing that <laughs> was, was great the gift you needed <laughs> uh she was just stuck there listen to me talk about uh the second um yeah so uh I, i'm back
1: well no and you and and if they didn't know from the title i mean you're, you're giving away the goods which is why we're here we're here to talk all things middle earth we're here to talk the world that Tolkien made, we're here, to, we're here to reintroduce or introduce maybe to a lot of people who are, let's just say non-nerds maybe, mm. um, some of the depths and the riches of, of what he's doing, how he's doing it, uh, yeah. why he's doing it, these kinds of things. Um, I talked to students just the other day, just the other day, who had never read even The Hobbit. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to put their names mm. out there right now because uh, I'm not sure about the legality of that. Um, yeah <laughs> but I'm talking like sophomore students of mine, okay 15, yeah. 16. Um, you know, one girl I talked to, obsessed with it, loves it, and then a couple of her friends haven't read a thing. Yeah, haven't read a thing. And I'm like, hey, did you watch the movies? And at least one of them I know for a fact has not even seen the movies. okay which is which is amazing, but maybe also incredible well, in, a, in an, an exciting and great way. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I think so I mean, the movies have been out for a long time now.
1: Yeah, that's true. So
0: they're like 20 years old. And I'm like, I don't know. Before those kids were born. Before they were born. That's And, and, and I think that, uh, like when I think about growing up, there's probably really important movies that I didn't watch that were 20 years old, and I got to them later, and that's fine. Fair enough. Did I talk about how I started loving Tolkien last time? I don't remember. How did you start loving Tolkien? Well, through The Hobbit, which my mom read to me. I loved The Hobbit.
1: So she read it to you. You were a little I was a child. I kid.
0: Loved it. And I always thought I should love Lord of the Rings. But when I went to read it, when I think I was like, I think the first time I tried, I was probably like 13. Okay. Going into it thinking like, oh, I definitely am going to love this. This is going to be my my deal. I bounced off of it. I recoiled off of it. Ooh. I did not love it. There was too many trees. Things didn't happen quickly enough. I liked the first chapter where it talked about hobbits, but it was hard for me to get into the action and the scope of it. I tried again when I was in high school. To my eternal shame, um, a kid who was younger than me, like two years younger than me, so I'm 13, he's 11, was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And we were talking about it one day, and I was like, I really like the hobbit, but the Lord of the Rings sucks. And he, I want to emphasize rightly, yeah. attacked me physically. Physically attacked uh, you. Yeah, he charged yeah. at me in my yard. and <laughs> Wordless, I wish, just
1: wordless, didn't say yeah, anything.
0: I just wish that his... speech. Oh, no, not wordless. He <laughs> screamed incoherently. Uh-huh. Yeah, he just yelled at me and he bum-rushed me. Um, looking back with a high amount of shame, okay, <laughs> uh, I wish that his... Valor had been matched by his uh, combat prowess. Oh, I, I did yeah. win that fight pretty easily. I was older than him. But and Justice, I will I'll say a couple of things. So purity
1: like, was on his side.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, Justice was definitely on his side. I look back at that later and um, I was deeply ashamed. I was also a little bit happy that it happened when it did because if you... You know, were to fast forward to when I did love Tolkien when I was like eighteen or nineteen, um, that that kid had hit a growth spurt and was a linebacker. Um, <laughs> he was like maybe five, six inches taller than me. Could oh, have yeah, gone different. Oh yeah, he would he would have wrecked me. Yeah. Um, but I I you know I think I think about that a lot. So it's like I knew it was something I was going to like. I feel really bad. Did about
1: he, that he really. did he just shout
0: death? <laughs>
1: just charge at you i it was just <laughs> um but he was he was incensed yeah. it was a, it was a primal visceral reaction yeah like i think to I you was saying like, I, something read it that and I ought it not sucked. be said
0: and he was like it doesn't suck it's awesome i was like yeah it did suck and it was kind of like that you know uh middle school thing where it's like oh he's mad about something so i'm gonna you pushed i'm it. gonna push it yeah. more
1: and and he yeah. ran.
0: No, he's yeah. right. Now now I am the one who will bum That's rush anyone, man, woman, child. Anyone. I'll put him to the ground. Yeah. Um so uh yeah eighteen nineteen 18, before. It 19. Hit. So what I, was the difference? Well, I just grew up a little bit. Yeah. Um I was able to um uh not be a stupid idiot. Nice and um when I when I read it, I could you know, I had an attention span that was more than like a couple of seconds long. And I wound up taking a course on Tolkien early on in my college years. I think I read Lord of the Rings at the end of my high school career, beginning of my college career, and I really loved it. But then when I took that course, uh, I was just in. And then that's when the movie started coming out. So all all that to say for our young students, uh, I wouldn't give up hope on them yet. They have plenty of time to discover this. All is not lost. Um, All is not lost. Um, uh, Before we get into it, I want to give this disclaimer. I feel like I am not more than a dilettante. The people I know, people who really have deep Tolkien lore and knowledge, I am not them. Okay, Uh, I I have not read all of the stuff. There's so much stuff, and I have not read it all. I want to just put that up front. Like when I when I speak about the
1: average human being walking Uh around in not Middle Earth
0: more more than them i know more than them yes but i feel like that
1: doesn't really matter but like it's like uh it's the museum person right it's the person you just need the to docent? know yeah you need to I be a little i guess i could be a tolkien you could be a docent, docent. Yeah. just walk us around the yard point at some things yeah give us some words we've never heard okay well let's start with tolkien uh the human the mm-hmm. human he's born at the end of the 19th century lives all the way i mm-hmm. mean pretty Late-ish 20th century, which is an incredible sort of run, a span of time to be alive. He was
0: born in like 1890-something, and he died in like 1976, I want
1: to say? Almost, yeah. 1892 to 1973. 73, okay. That's an incredible stretch across two major centuries. And he is a professor of what? Anglo-Saxon
0: literature. He's technically, I think, I believe he you know, is a philologist, right? He describes himself as a philologist. Right. But his specialization within that general love of language is um, I think Germanic, ancient Germanic languages. But he definitely made his most major contributions as an academic in the field of Old English and like Anglo-Saxon studies and stuff like that.
1: He's a professor from 1925 to 1945, also an incredible time uh, at Oxford. Um, so right after world war one, he was in world war one.
0: Yep. Fought in the Somme. Yep.
1: battled the Somme. He
0: was like, I think he went into world war one with three or four friends and he's the only one who came out. Yeah. Uh, so experienced just devastating loss and upheaval as a young man. Um, yeah, he comes out, he, be, uh, becomes a professor. Um, but I mean, along the way, um, Going back before that uh and and during and after he's he's inventing stories and languages and worlds um, the most major of which you know comes to us in the form of middle earth
1: mm-hmm. so and as a philologist one who loves yeah one who loves language one who loves words one one who um i mean we would Say the philologist is the sort of what we think of now as become sort of the English major, but it yeah. was more of a technical, more of a linguistic, yeah, uh, Bent, I would say, a much more specialized, a little bit more uh, difficult, uh, I don't know if difficult, yeah. but much more specialized form of training than You're... just reading novels that you like.
0: You're doing English majors quite a bit of credit Sorry. by calling them philologists, the only people who still call themselves philologists are classicists right so yeah. th- that's what people i mean people who specialize in language but yeah but, yeah, yeah absolutely They're, that's it the is root about the of language itself becomes, yeah. yeah and, and so,
1: now the english major or the uh the doctor of english or whatever um yes i did not have to do that training right. right uh but that is a classicist or a classics department still has that scrupulous attention to the language and to linguistics yeah okay yeah so he is he is a he is a linguist. He is yes. a lover of, and also very adept with languages. Do you know how many? I mean, just the the Romance tree. I don't. The- I
0: don't. want to. I don't want to ballpark it. Definitely more than the Romance yeah. languages. So, in for sure, right? He studied Greek and Latin as a young boy, going through the the British educational system of the time. He um, uh, to to a fairly high degree, I think. Um, obviously, he was an expert of Old English and Middle English, but I mainly am coming at this from the point of view of his invented languages Mm. and uh, the aesthetics that he cites. Um, Within those aesthetics, Quenya, which is like the sort of like Elvish version of Latin, it's the old Elvish, is most closely based on Finnish in terms of the sounds it uses. So I think he knew Finnish. I think he knew Old Norse and uh, probably the modern Scandinavian languages. Uh, Sindarin, which is like the the younger Elvish language that people actually speak in like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, um, is largely based on Welsh. So he was familiar with the Celtic languages as well. Um, And then in his writing, there's a couple of words that are um, names, basically. Uh, or titles that are directly from Turkish, so mm. um, he had some some knowledge of Turkish. I'm I, I would guess that like I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to guess. I, I would be I would be surprised if like you know that number was less than like thirteen or something like mm. that. Probably it's higher than that. Um, but then the question is is like you know to what degree did he pursue all of those languages or did he like learn things about them? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a little quote from him yeah. that um, on that. He says, many children make up or begin to make up imaginary languages. I have been at it since I could write, but I have never stopped. And of course, as a professional philologist, especially interested in linguistic aesthetics, I have changed in taste, improved in theory, and probably in craft. Behind my stories is now a nexus of languages, mostly only structurally sketched. So, I think it is the case that... um, especially as his creative life progressed, language was a major entry point to the sort of like stories and details about the world that he was creating. And I know it's, it's been cited and said, I don't know if it's by his son or by him, that basically like um, Middle Earth exists to give a venue to the names and languages that he created, that he, whose sounds appealed to him. Now that that might be a hindsight is twenty twenty thing. He clearly had a lot of interest in like the narrative material and sort of like historiography and like uh, you know fable elements as well.
1: So, but you said a couple times now the aesthetics of yes of the language. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? So a, like a sound is a world. A sound is a style a sound is a is an atmosphere like what what does it mean to talk about the aesthetics of language sort of giving rise to these worlds places characters what do you mean by aesthetics of language?
0: yeah well so this is I mean I basically am going off of what he said because when I with my own training in languages I don't necessarily think about things in the same way things don't hit me the same way maybe I've like dulled that part of my you know, sound receptors or whatever. But I think it absolutely is about the quality of certain sounds and combinations of sounds that elicit certain feelings in him um, and that he feels are associated with certain ideas and he puts them together. And I, I just get the impression, having read a lot of stuff that he's said about this, that he would work on it until it felt right and until it felt right until it felt true and then from that he could start to tell other things about the society that would have given somebody that name or the person who received that name and um, I think he just I think a lot of what he did was working from there's like like making sure the right names went to the right people Mm. um and I have to say as somebody who has read fantasy his whole life, um, I mean, everybody makes everybody who writes fantasy makes up a bunch of names. Um, most of the time, um, at best, most of them are inoffensive. Um, there are well-regarded fantasy series that I've never made it past the first book because the names just like pull me out of it. Um, it's wheel of time. Wow, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Bobby, uh, Jordan. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say a couple of words that might sound offensive, yeah. <laughs> but they're literally just in the book. Yeah. If you want me to take your book seriously, and I'm yeah. like listening to it on an audiobook. Yeah. You can only talk about taking something called the Choden call into a place called the taint so many times before i just dip i'm done anyway i mean i think that i that's not a dig against the author of wheel of time I, so many people love those books and they're they're in it for different reasons than i am but i will say this tolkien's languages are on a different level mm. they feel real like mm. they they there's there's a there's a rationale to them that adds a sense of secondary verisimilitude to what you're reading. At mm-hmm. least that's the way I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, you know, uh, might feel that way. But I mean, he did create two very functional languages. One of them has a smaller vocabulary, but there's enough of a rationale there to where people have been able to drastically add to that vocabulary with uh with people who are legit linguists have been able to figure out, okay, well, what what would the root words of this word that Tolkien wrote be? And then what other words can we get from that? So it's functional, right? It's functional. There's a functionality to it that is missing in most fantasy. Most fantasy, it's like you get a gloss over the top. And you know, I honestly think sometimes people do that just because Tolkien is so important in the development of the field of fantasy, the genre of fantasy, that they feel like they have to do that, but they they can't, right? They're not they're not somebody who spent their entire life studying language. Um, they they have to make they have to they have to add interest and value, and verisimilitude if they want in an, in another way. Um, uh, I'll just say one more thing about the language say a lot more about the languages. He has he has parts of a lot of different languages as he said in that quote. One of the interesting things in The Lord of the Rings is that it's written in English, <laughs> but it has a lot of other made-up languages in it, right? But it also has other real languages in it. When the when Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli go to the, the uh, to Rohan and they um, they meet with um, deodin they speak Old English okay it's real Old English why? why did Tolkien put Old English in this in this book? for the same reason that it's interesting that it's written in English and the, the reason is is that his conceit when he wrote the book is that it actually is translated from a language called Westron into English. Westron, also known as the common tongue that like normal people living in Middle Earth speak. The the Rohirrim, the people who live in Rohan, had another language besides Westron that was a that was a, a distant relative etymologically and linguistically speaking to Westron that deviated from Westron to the same degree that old English deviates from modern English. (laughs) And by extension, when you're reading Sindarin and Quenyan, which are Elvish languages, they also have little, like they have little, his conceit is that they have little phonemes and like, particles that are someday maybe going to make their way into like Welsh and Finnish. And the deviation between them in English is the same, right? So you can see how far away the Elvish language is from Westron by looking at the Elvish language that's written there. I actually have a book that's all about (laughs) anyone stupid enough to try and translate. So. People were, it was popular, his books were popular, they were being translated into other uh, other languages. Tolkien wrote a number of copious letters to the editors saying, look, I don't know if it's a great idea to translate this into a different language, but if you do it, here's how you do it. Here's a list of names of hobbits and what I think they would be in German if you want (laughs) to preserve the feeling that an English reader would get, which represents the feeling that they... Is conveyed in Westron, a made-up language that nobody knows, right? Adunaic or whatever. So he he, it's it's like it's like sort of it's sort of like taking linguistics and then doing like making it into quadratic algebra, right? It's it's a game of it's tr- true that this is true about linguistics. It's a game of. Um, the relationships between sounds, and the relationships between sound and idea, and then how, how does that change the further away you go from the original source. So, yeah.
1: So he is in his own class as far as someone who, before he was a professor just his whole life, has been working at languages, interested in languages, and then developing ultimately worlds out yes. of the sounds and these things. I would say so. But it's also interesting that he writes this well this epic world but these this epic story these epic stories um at a time in literature which is sort of like you know high modernism like yeah. like this is not the kind of thing that was being written this is this is not the kind of thing that was popular this is certainly not the kind of thing that you would teach at oxford uh, right. when it came to it right like him and Lewis and this whole idea of like why they're even interested in bringing back or recovering or inventing myth and mm-hmm. and this kind of epic kind of narrative worlds these kinds of things this is really out of kilter almost embarrassing to a lot of the the literati at the time, even fellow professors, right, and the yes. kinds of things that they're doing that feel like something for children, something that is very passe. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk also a little bit about why why this kind of genre, um, why this kind of literature, why why the mythic, why this yeah. epic, why why is he interested in bringing that into? early 20th century, in the 20th century world yeah. in his context, especially knowing that the things he'd studied and the things he was well versed in, I mean, they, they had their place, their time. They're usually the, the old narratives of, of, of a people, of a community of yeah. some kind of early moment of a, of a group or a civilizational thing or some defensive empire or something like this. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's the, what's the reasoning behind myth being something worth being up to uh, aside from just this hobbyist interest in languages and all that mm-hmm. other stuff. Um, what's the reason for this push from Tolkien Lewis and others to the mythic at a mm-hmm. time in which that is, that is not an obvious move.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, before I answer it, I just want to say you're right about their literary creations, but going a step further, I think that leaving leaving their leaving leaving tolkien's foray into fantasy aside the things that he elected to study as a professional academic were also passé and would raise eyebrows like i mean beowulf occupies the place that it does in world literature now i don't want to overstate this but like in, in, in a large part, at least, thanks to Tolkien's defense of it as something that was worth studying rather than something that should be just chucked into the dustbin of history because it didn't have um, the literary aesthetic uh, qualities that that people valued at the time. The same thing with um, the the high medieval literature that he studied and worked on. So given that people think that what he's... The, the actual mythology that he studies is passe I think it was just like you know highly cringe inducing that he was also producing his own myths right right people is like I don't I think there's probably people who just didn't really know how to talk about it and address it so why why is he doing that um that's a good question and I think that there's a, a lot of different answers um one answer that gets um, sort of like pushed around a lot, which I think is valid. I think he did say this, is the idea that he is writing a sort of like foundational mythology for the English people, as opposed to like the Celtic people who already have King Arthur and a bunch of other legends or the Norse people who have their own thing, right? He's it's for the English people. And I think that there's something to that, but like, I'm sorry. You, you you wouldn't need to do all the stuff he did if that was the only thing that you were trying to do. Um there's a lot of you know baggage or or baggage that I really love, but there's a lot of extra stuff in there. You could just come up with some stories about like Horsa and Hengist, you know, <laughs> burning Britain villages and boom, you know, you're good to go. But so um he uh gave a lecture I think in the 40s, maybe the 50s at uh, St. Andrew's College, I think, in Scotland. Uh, It's called On Fairy Stories. Um, And in On Fairy Stories, he talks a lot about what he calls the fairy story. And um, we might say it's a fairy tale, although I think that definitionally it might be a little bit more uh, more distinct or maybe a little bit all-encompassing. And basically... The the big takeaway from that is a couple of things. Number one, he makes the argument really strongly that as created beings, we are unique in our capacity to create and that it is a human activity that has... That, that various humans have done at all stages in, in human uh, existence and that it's worth doing. Uh, and uh, furthermore, he's sort of like, um, he talks about fairy stories as being part of a sub-creation, a secondary creation. And he says that it, if that secondary creation um, that a created being can is capable of producing, if that secondary creation is cohesive enough, it can produce what he calls secondary belief, which I think we might say might encompass like suspension of disbelief, but also the the, the ability to believe that something is, the, the ability to immerse ourselves in something and accept it as being internally consistent and containing truths. Even if it's not necessarily something that we can like uh, hang among the like facts that like litter our world, and he says a lot of stuff that like I don't know I I need to maybe think more deeply about. But but basically, you know, uh, I think at one point he says, "Is an elm tree less real than a factory?" And because because in the secondary creation there are elm trees, right? Um. Reading between the lines a little bit, I think that um, Tolkien. Um, I don't think this is uh, controversial at all. Tolkien is somebody who is suspicious of modernity, particularly mechanization, and um, and, and 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 very. Uh, Loving of and protecting a protective of the natural world as he encountered it um, a closeness that human beings Had with land the land that they lived on um, That he saw as being lost in the time that he was uh, Living I think to a certain extent rightfully so um, and I get the sense reading that uh, uh, that passage that I just mentioned that For him, that secondary creation is a way to sort of like access the connection between mankind and nature and like the sort of spontaneity of being alive in nature vicariously when you might not be able to do it every day um, in reality. That's my interpretation. I don't think that's as obvious, but I think that that's there. So that's number one. Number two... He talks about escape Um, and he's always very cheeky when he talks about escape because if you talk to a lot of people and you ask them whether or not escapism is a good thing, they'll say no. And I think that they have a point and I think that Tolkien would agree that they they have a point, but in that essay or in, in that talk, Tolkien draws a distinction between the escape of the prisoner and the flight of the deserter, right? And he says, there's nothing wrong with escape. Nobody in their right mind would begrudge someone who's in a terrible situation for wanting to get out of that situation, even for a while. We would begrudge somebody for running away from the duties that they have, deserting right escaping a bad situation is not the same as deserting duties and so uh he up front says that fairy stories have served that purpose to let mankind human beings escape aspects of the 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 sort of day-to-day realities that they're trapped in and i think tolkien loves this idea i think that um he you know, like like what I said before, he saw the way that the world was developing, the way that the natural world is being exploited, and um, uh, an increased sort of like logic of mechanization and mechanization in our society. And it didn't make him feel good, right? He had been on the receiving end, uh, the giving and receiving end of the, you know, really one of the first fully mechanized wars, one of those terrible wars. I think that that could be part of it. I think that there's probably another, a lot of other reasons too. But then, I mean, he, he, he goes into more detail and he talks about, you know, ev- everyone is going to, like, needs to, to get a breath of fresh air, right? to get a glimpse of sunshine. And um, he argues in a general way that um, fairy stories have done that in the past. Um and then third, uh, he, he mentions a couple of other factors, but like the third factor I want to talk about is recovery. And so he he for he interestingly, I think, for the moment we live in, where like every movie that comes out is some kind of a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um he says that there's a big difference between drama and fairy stories, and that a good drama Like the best dramas are real tragedies. They produce an emotional effect. But the best fairy stories have a upward movement, have a sense of recovery, have a unlooked for um, element of goodness in them, an unexpected and unlikely turn. And he refers to that as eucatastrophe, as you said. U um, catastrophe, right? The the good turn. It's like it's like something. in uh, he later on he talks about the disc catastrophe, right? So this for us, I think when we say the word catastrophe, it's always bad. But like for uh, for Tolkien, I think going back to um, the original Greek meaning of the word, it's a stroke. Boom, something happens, and the U catastrophe is a good stroke. And he says that uh, much in the same way that the best dramas have our tragedy and have that sense of tragedy, the best fairy stories are the opposite of tragedy, which is not comedy, crucially, making a big break from Aristotle there, but that they have a sudden and unexpected upturn in the same way that tragedies have a sort of like unearned, downward turn in fortune for the heroic people who are in them. Fairy stories have some element of that. At least the best ones do. That's what he says. And then the epilogue of on fairy stories, he like, you know, slips in a nice little mini sermon. Um, and he basically says that, um, you know, he kind of, he, he makes an appeal to like a largely Christian audience and he says, he's, he doesn't say that the story of Jesus is a fairy story. What he says is, is that it might be like a greater, um, fairy stories might be a poorer reflection of the story of Jesus. And he says that the story of, the sto- for, for people who believe in Jesus as a, as a savior and looked to Jesus for salvation, the story of Jesus contains two you catastrophes, right? One being Christ's birth, right? Um, the second being Christ's resurrection. And so, um, to Tolkien anyway, um, in addition to all the other stuff that he thinks fairy stories are good for and like sort of feed mankind's soul and imagination, um, they also incline him or incline make, make him inclined to sort of like dwell upon and think upon... Um, A story that he considered real, um, which is uh, uh, the story of Jesus in the Bible. Um, You've used the word uh,
1: verisimilitude a few times. Yeah. Usually evokes the sense of something that is real or like experience or something that
0: resembles. Yeah. I don't know if I'm using the right. I don't know if I'm using it right. Well. Maybe internal. Internal. Internal believability or consistency would be better. Yeah, well, you
1: used that. Yeah, when you were talking about his worlds being um, being realistic inherently or self. Yeah, right. Referential. They're internally consistent in the way that you can become immersed, not be pulled out by a ridiculous sort of impossibility or something. Um, But it is interesting because like the, the modernist thing of verisimilitude or realism is look after world war one and all the things that you talked about um, like everything sucks and (laughs) the world is a bleak, dark place and our experience are fragmented. And so truly realistic literature is just going to sort of mirror and imitate what we actually are left with. Um, yeah. And and yet that last move at the end of, on fairy stories, or at least in the epilogue, um, Tolkien's sort of Christian sort of uh, undercurrent, which becomes explicit, um, suggests that there is a realism uh, of the fairy tale or the fairy story um, in as far as it, it is reflecting the real story of Christ or the historical narrative of the Gospels in some way, right? Yeah. So it becomes this very provocative, especially at the time, like you said, in which his own sort of uh, peers would be cringing at what he both studied, yeah. taught, and produced. Yeah. Um, but that there is this deeper sort of conviction of a form of This is actually um, Mm. human beings have actually been made to make. Human beings have actually um, found themselves in enemy territory uh, writ large. Yeah, Uh, human beings have actually um, experienced something 2,000 years ago in history that was this these two catastrophes. That that is that there is a there is a reality to the narrative there uh, for his his Catholic belief in mm-hmm. the gospels um, that suggests this isn't that fantasy as he is uh, approaching it has a form of realism, you know, a deeper form of realism than maybe um, people would normally associate with
0: that kind of language or that kind of term. Is that fair? I, I think, yeah, I think a lot, of, I think a lot of that is fair. And I also just want to say, uh, uh, Woods just dropped his notes. So we're totally <laughs> off the rails now. I only have um, four things on there. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think Tolkien would agree with pretty much most of that. I don't think that, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, literature that reflects some sort of like idea of quote unquote reality, which is just as constructed as fantasy. It's just that the, I think part of Tolkien's point is, is that the touchstones that people look for in different literary genres are different. The realism in a fairy story is real, right? It, it might have more to do with like emotion. It might have more to do with, uh, the imagination of the world of a world that you can't quite touch, but, but, you know, realist, modernist literature is also constructing, also also has elements of, that require belief, right? Um, I don't know if Tolkien, Tolkien would probably disagree with me. I don't necessarily think that it's bad to have the other type of literature. But I think that having, but having literature that feeds one's emotions and imagination And, um, sets out a story that could be true, right? Um, sets out a, I don't want to say it like that sets out a set of principles or ideas that could happen. Like good things can happen, Mm. right? Um, they do, right? Whether or not we're in a place where we notice it is kind of due to our own, um, frame of mind. Mm. Um, I do think uh, Tolkien is um, trading on the actual reality of of Jesus' life. But for the purposes of his essay, I don't think that that's necessarily the most important thing. The most important thing is that it's having a real impact, presumably on, well, definitely on his own life and presumably on the lives of uh, many people in the audience. And and he's basically, I think he's basically saying to them like, if you can look to that for hope, you can look to these stories that you might write off as frivolous to lighten the load. Mm-hmm. And I also have to say that in the course of that essay, he drags a lot of stuff about fairy stories. He drags a lot of, things that people might associate with fairy stories or think that he means um, as not as being frivolous as being uh, um, light and flippant. Uh, he's, he's talking, uh, he's speaking to celebrate Andrew Lang who wrote um, the different colored fairy books, right? The, the red fairy book, the green fairy book, which I read many of when I was younger and, I, have, I want to give credit to Tolkien. Tolkien at least like shouts out Andrew Lang's wife who probably did most of that work. We now know. Um, and, but, and so he praises Lang, but he also criticizes some of the, he, he he's like, well, this particular story, it's like, it's not that good. It doesn't like bring me to that level. And so um, he also attacks the idea that fairy stories are, should be mainly geared at and, and, put in front of children right Um, and basically what he says is in the same way that um, I can't remember the example he uses but like different types of literature you take the simplest the simplest forms and put them in front of children and if they like it they go further and they read the adult forms of it He, he says the same thing about fairy stories that there should be a spectrum and crucially I think to his own experiences he says that when he was a young boy, he was interested in all kinds of different stuff, a lot of science, and certainly to a certain extent like fairy tales and stuff like that. But he really started getting into fairy stories after World War I, right? As an adult who had been through some serious stuff. So I think that idea of escape is there. And I think it's, you know, if you want to criticize Tolkien for that, I'd go for it, you know, um, uh, I, 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 think a lot of people really don't like the idea of escapism. Um, I think that, uh, a lot of people, um, adopt a mentality of like sort of a brutalist realism as a way to like, um, achieve some kind of like, uh, stoic equilibrium or something like that. And I think, you know, that's maybe, maybe not the end of the world, but it's, uh, certainly, uh seems like a dreary way. It's bleak. It's bleak. Yeah. It's boring. I mean, you're just going to die anyway. You're going to die anyway. You might as well uh, read a bunch of stories about some elves and stuff. And (laughs) you know, magic rings. Why not?
1: (laughs) Well, and it is, it is the case that like, you know, even thinking of like our students or like, Young people, like the fantasy thing has become, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's back in a real way and and probably wouldn't well, have felt like it's ever so, been away. So, I mean, yeah.
0: yeah. So th- th- this is, this is the other problem. It's like yeah. when you get to like mm, the end of something yeah, and you just stop looking at what's really there, yeah. that is a different problem than what Tolkien was dealing with. Right. <laughs> at the beginning of something that yeah. hadn't, hadn't worked its way through. And I, I, feel, I do feel that way about. As somebody who loves fantasy and and enjoy has enjoyed the escapism my whole life, I do feel that way about um, uh, some of the way that like I don't know mass produced culture sort of like churns through uh, imaginary worlds and puts them in front of you. It's just that there's nothing else going on. Yeah, is that what's yeah. what's what's the, what's the deal? Where's the vitality, right? It's like it's it's almost like an acknowledgement of. Uh, Edging up on creative bankruptness or something like that, (laughs) or like, or or like, a, um, you know, the need for some kind of opiate to like distract people from other things that might not be going great in their lives.
1: It's now become algorithmic fantasy, 100%. Okay, but the OG, right? Not that you
0: can't find stuff to entertain yourself in there,
1: but but the OG, I mean, like. he's drawing on, I mean, he talks about a cauldron of stories. He's, yes. he's drawing on these, like on stories that have become well known to us largely through him. Um, yes. things like Beowulf, like you said, yeah. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yeah. Like he kind of rehabilitates or like reintroduces a lot of stuff. Yeah.
0: So, some Viking mythology too, right? The, the Prose Edda. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah definitely.
1: Do you, do you need, uh, any kind of background to just, enjoy reading lord of the rings enjoy reading the hobbit does it add in your experience does it add a lot to know what he's drawing on or what what's in there uh in that sense
0: i guess it depends somewhat on your personality well so no you don't uh that's that's the answer, the answer is, no you don't um are good they're they're good stories right they have their their stories that have a lot of the elements of other good stories, and you'll enjoy them um, if you like stories and you're willing to like, uh, sort of like adopt that secondary belief in the world that he sets in front of you. Remember, I mean, like, like I said, my mom read The Hobbit to me, and I loved The Hobbit. That's that's it. Um, the Hobbit particularly is very accessible, but I think once you get past like a certain base level of enjoyment. Which, this is not a diss, but I feel like is the level of enjoyment that a lot of people are looking for. Which is like, hey, distract me for a while. Tell me a story. Maybe I'll think about some of the narrative elements of that story for a bit. I've never really been like that. I've always been somebody who like wants to know more. Uh, if, if it's compelling, I want to like dig deeper. Well, okay. So, the Lord of the Rings is definitely for you. Okay, Um, uh, there's another quote that I want to read. One of the things that makes Tolkien's novels that were published unique is that, especially with the publication of Lord of the Rings, which was his second story, right, that he published. He published The Hobbit. It was very, very popular. Then the publishers asked him to do a sequel to The Hobbit and he started to write it, but elements from this wider creation that he had never really shared with anybody except for maybe like his kids talk to the inklings about started to make their way into that story and so he wound up writing a story that was very different than the hobbit he also wound up revising the hobbit so that it was a bit more consistent with the lord of the rings but there were elements of that larger story that were present from the very beginning Right? The main thing is Elrond, right? Elrond is a character who's in, he's an elf. Well, his name's Elrond Half Elven, so technically a half elf. He is an an elven lord. He rules over this um, elven fortress called Rivendell, and he's a major figure in The Hobbit and a major figure in The Lord of the Rings, but he's also like the Scion of a lot of other history in this unpublished imaginary world that Tolkien had invented. This is in a letter to one of his friends. Once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story. The larger founded in the lesser, in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the bat, the vast backcloths, which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. Um, and then he goes on to say it specifically should not evoke Italy. Um, <laughs> and so, but but that is basically why he was making this wider world. And his decision to set Lord of the Rings in that world kind of achieved what I think he set out to do, which is one of the reasons that I like Lord of the Rings is the story and the action and the all of the sort of like surface stuff that you look for in a book. But one of the reasons I like Lord of the Rings is that it feels like it takes place in a world with history. And it does, right? And... um I think he achieved that in a lesser way than what he was hoping to do, right? I think he wanted it to be much more sprawling and epic. But, um, and most of the stories, the romantic fairy stories as he calls them, which I think we would say would be like novels or series of novels, were, were different ones than the ones that he wrote in, in the, the Lord of the Rings. But the basic template is there. It is a really solid, um, it's a really solid story in a lived-in world that has that has history there. You're seeing the tip of the iceberg. And when you scratch the surface, it pretty much doesn't let you down. So that's not what everybody's looking for in a reading experience, but it 100% is what I'm looking for in a reading experience. Obviously, I wouldn't be as interested in all the things I've spent like my entire academic and professional life doing if I didn't like lore, basically. Lore is not for everybody. A lot of people want in their writing, they want the road by Cormac McCarthy. Equally fantastical, right? Sparse. Just to the point. You it literally can't focus on anything else. I like that. But I sometimes I want more, right? Sometimes I want uh I want a uh I want I want a buffet. I want to I explore the iceberg. And so that's one of the things that informs why Lord of the Rings and then by extension The Hobbit are as, um, I think have lasted as long as they did. There's this idea, like if you, even if you just watch the movie, the Lord of the Rings movie and the first movie, it starts out, with an incredibly epic scene. It's the last battle, the last alliance of men and elves fighting against the Dark Lord Sauron. Spoiler alert, he loses, and he kind of like explodes in this like uh, blast of miasmic energy. If you pause it at the right moment, this wave of energy blasts over this giant army of elves and heroic humans. There's like this one split second where this elf is like getting knocked back and kind of like looks up. And if you pause it, it's Legolas. That dude's like 2000 years old. (laughs) He was in that battle. He remembers it. And so the, one of the, one of the main characters of the actual story is this guy who is thousands of years old. Um, Elrond remembers it, right? Um, Galadriel, Uh, as a character shows up and she represents this insane history and you that that is what I'm talking about when I when I say verisimilitude or internal consistency when you read it as the characters like Sam Gamgee coming to this you, you know a normal person in this world you feel the weight of history and that is a reading experience that's unlike just sort of like reading a novel where somebody just made a bunch of arbitrary decisions and maybe they're diverting but like it's just different I think
1: when you if you were to that cosmogonic uh, backdrop drop that many yeah. people don't know who have enjoyed the Hobbit or even even read Lord <laughs> of the Rings or at least watched the movies um, I mean this this is the stuff right like yeah, this is a good stuff m- the separates the men and the boys like this is like the Silmarillion like this kind of the deep yeah <laughs> The deeper history. Okay. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I oh, I can talk about it. So but first I wanna I wanna say one or two words. I wanna I wanna give a shout out to Christopher Tolkien. J.R. Tolkien, his oldest son, I believe it's his oldest son. His named Christopher Tolkien. This is a kid he told stories to that he made up, shared, I think, a lot of his work as he was uh coming up with Middle-earth. I went to the pub in Oxford where the Inklings, including like uh, Charles Williams and C.S. Lewis and, um, and J.R.R. Tolkien, they used to meet there. It's called the Eagle and Child. They have like a little shrine to them, a little side corner where there's like a table, and on the wall there's like a a document that all of the Inklings signed and they dated. So it's all these like literary titans that had these great publishing careers who are like, you know, in their 50s or 60s, I think, when the, the document was signed, signed in like the, maybe the 40s or 50s. And then down at the bottom, there's one more name, Christopher Tolkien, right? And he's there as a young man, right? In the, in the, in the company of, of the legends. So he fought in World War II. Uh, he came back. He basically devoted, he also was a scholar, I believe he taught at either Oxford or Cambridge for a while. Um, He he definitely studied at one of those places. Again, I'm not totally up on the biographical details. He devoted the rest of his life to being a steward of the world that his father had created. And this used to rankle me when I was younger. Um, I thought that he was maybe a little too... um, Grasped a little too hard when I was like in a fan club and I wanted we wanted permission to like publish our fanzine or our calendar or whatever and we couldn't get permission from the Tolkien estate. But now, with the benefit of hindsight and God rest his soul, he passed away in 2020, I think, um, at a very old age in his 90s. Uh, he deserves a ton of credit. And if you look at the legacies of other other very prolific authors, whose like work gets taken on by their son. <laughs> Frank Herbert. It, it, there's just no comparison. He's just, he's like a scholar for his father's notes and he lovingly addresses all of them. And he worked through what I assume is just like a hydra every <laughs> single page. So this is, the, this is the thing about digging into the iceberg. You want a co- coherent story. You, want a, you probably want a nice novel that's going to tell you, oh, this is what happened before Lords of the Rings. Guess what? You're not going to find that. You basically have to become a scholar yourself. Um, You can find some some coherent narratives and then you can find other notes that completely change those narratives. Because J.R.R. Tolkien was discovering this world that was real to him as a secondary creation. So things changed when he would go in Stuff would change, so there's this giant like mass of handwritten, often contradictory notes that Christopher Tolkien is working through. He published, along with some help from fantasy author Guy Gabriel K, the Silmarillion in 1977. J.R.R. Tolkien had wanted to publish it, and he people were like, "What? That that's insane! Like, we can't. We're not going to do it, right?" They never published it. Christopher Tolkien got it published after his death, but I think that he would say he made some decisions in order to present a cohesive narrative that might, that, that uh, methodologically might not have been consistent with what he would have wanted later on in life. But fortunately for all of us, he had the luxury of being able to work through this stuff to his leisure. And use his intimate... So it's like, imagine being a... Like, I really love the things that I study. But they weren't literally written by my dad. (laughs) That's Christopher (laughs) Tolkien. So loving. And now, he's produced tons of books. They're all really good. This one, The Fall of Numenor, came out 2022. It's got illustrations by one of the best, like sort of like traditional artists out there, Alan Lee, who worked on the movies. Every chapter, it's like perfectly laid out. It's just like a wonderful book to hold. It talks about, it gives in order, collates all of the information about the fall of Numenor, which is kind of like the Middle Earth version of Atlantis. There's a lot of books like that. And this is why I say I'm not an expert because I think for each book, each like physical volume in Lord of the Rings, there are three books of notes each. <laughs> There's like nine books just about the notes of Tolkien writing The Lord of the Rings. So you can go through and you can see every every version, every draft. Christopher Tolkien also went and from that that giant uh, you know, cosmogonical, um, you know, creation. He picked what his father would have wanted as the major romances. And he, he did his best to um, make them into coherent novels, essentially, if you want to read them that way, while staying very faithful to the things that his father actually wrote. Excuse me. Um, so those would be the children of Hurin, the fall of Gondolin, um Uh, the tale of Baron and Luthien. Uh, And then he also, he, he published a lot of other stuff besides. So there's a real wealth of information, but also keep in mind that anything I say about the details of the history of middle earth, you can find a contradictory source, (laughs) much like in real history, right? (laughs) Often. Right. So if you're, if you're uh, tackling the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, you might find discrepancies between the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and like what you know Gregory of Tours is writing, or something like that. So that's kind of if if you have that, I would say I would recommend The Hobbit to anyone, The Lord of the Rings to most people who like a good story and like some sort of medieval style action. Um, I would recommend The Silmarillion to people who are interested in sparking their imagination through digesting a lot of material, each sentence of which, which just fires the imagination.